here. Um, today's reading is a very short one from Ephesians 6, chapter, Ephesians 6, verses 1 to 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Well, I got their uh, music out of order there. Um, it's fun. Let's hope for the best in that one. Uh, hello, I'm Sid. I introduced myself earlier. I'm the campus minister for RUF. How are we doing? Yeah, okay, we're getting better at answering that question. This is good. <laughs> Maybe sometimes it will. everyone will answer. That'll be... A modern miracle. Um, anyway, RUF is a Christian campus ministry that, exer- that exists to serve the campus, but also you all, wherever you are and however you are. And we mean that. We want to be a place that isn't just for one kind of person, but for every kind of person. And so uh, along those lines, we want to be a place where you can come and feel welcomed from any scene on campus and any personal background. And really, even where, wherever you stand with Jesus and Christianity, we just want you to come and feel welcome and be a part of our community. Uh, whether you call yourself convinced or unconvinced, whether you call yourself a believer or a spiritual skeptic, or whether you feel more content with something in between or none of the above. And really, so thanks for coming. That's all to say thanks for coming. But also to say, if you're new to RUF, um, we really want to especially welcome you. And I'd personally love to meet you. And I think also a lot of the students would love to meet you too. Uh, but also uh, Eric and Maddie, would you raise your hands? So these are the, Maddie loves it every time I call out her name, a little large group. Uh, but <laughs> so they're both interns uh, on staff with RUF and they would love to also get to know you as well. So anyway, so if people say hello, that's what's going on. Okay, and people just being friendly. Okay, this semester in large group, um, we've been talking about relationships relationships. Uh, more precisely, I've been calling this, what does Jesus have to do with my relationships? What does Jesus have to do with my friending, my family-ing, my dating, uh, sex, singleness, marriage? What does he have to do with all of the above categories? Um, and we really just finished a four-week mini-series. A big picture, take a step back, look at relationships. Uh, macro lens. This mini-series I've called the foundation of our relationships. Christian theologians would call what we did the gospel story or technically creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Those are really fancy big words, but really essentially all that means is that our, we went through the story of how relationships were created innocent and good, and then they fell uh, into today's often destructive and bad patterns. But... The assurance is that God is at work in the midst of our relationships, redeeming them, oftentimes through us, through the ways that human beings are owning the ways that we hurt others, as well as owning the ways that other people hurt us. And then the promise in all of this is consummation, that one day, someday, our relationships will be perfect. For the rest of the semester, we're no longer doing the big picture view, so some of you can just breathe deep. Uh, You've been waiting for this. We're going to look at how this foundation story plays out in specific relationships. We're going to look at and ask the question, what does it look like to practice the gospel story I just outlined 
in these relationships? How do the good and the bad and the hurtful and the healing result from our relationships? How does all of that work out in the context of community and, of course, in the realm of romance? Tonight, we're going to explore our relationships in the context uh, of our original and likely our most formational relationship. That's the relationship to our families, our families of origin is what we're going to look at. Um, In many ways, our parents and our guardians and our grandparents and our siblings all set our expectations for what relationships are. Um, And I'm going to try to not um, nerd out on you about the the neuroscience here, but they've done a lot of studying about how that underlines that observation that's pretty simple, that our expectations for relationships are created very young, that they're patterned into our neurons in the way that they fire. Um, There's a thing called implicit memory. Again, I'm not going to nerd out. I'm just going to toss it out there, and you'll just know that there's a lot of science behind what we're talking about. But anyway, our families have taught us things like stability, they've taught us significance and safety, as well as things like failure and favoritism and fear. And so we're looking at that together, but before we kind of look at this and look at this passage uh, in Ephesians chapter 6, would you pray with me? Father, um, this is in some ways maybe the most tender of subjects for some of us here, and for others of you here, it's the most calloused. Um, And I pray that you would meet us wherever we are with it, that you would draw near. You're pursuing God. You're a God who acts and speaks first. And I pray that you would help us to respond in kind, no matter where we are with you. I pray that this would be a time where uh, we were able to um, look at this passage and not put aside the things that we carried into this room, but help us to sort the things that we carried into this room in front of you, and even in this half hour. I pray that you would uh, be faithful to that, that you'd encourage us in that task, and that you would transform us. I pray that you, O Jesus, would be more believable and beautiful to the eyes of our hearts, that you'd be high and lifted up, and that we would see you. In your name, amen. So I'm going to break a cardinal rule of college ministry, okay? Here's a car- cardinal rule. Don't talk about your kids. You, you know, you said you're old, you have kids, don't talk about them. So I'm going to break that rule, and we're going to talk about my children. It won't be the first time I break the rule, nor will it be the last time, even this semester, that I break this rule. Uh, but I just want to tell you a little story that's actually mostly about me and not my children. Uh, it starts a few years ago when I volunteered to pick up my three children at the YMCA, so we, you know, we rotate picking kids up, and I was new to the the why, um, the why, especially the child watch thing. I don't know if you know what that is, where you put your kids in a place um, where while you go work out. But I figured like this wasn't outside of my abilities. I thought I could handle this. Just so you know, some context. I had at the time three children uh, under the age of four, so this was a little bit daunting. Uh, anyway, I successfully found my way through the series of twisting and turning hallways deliver the right passwords at the right time to the right people, remember the water bottles, and was even half carrying one or two children on my back as we passed by the vending machines, no incident, another deep breath. And then I could visual, I had visual confirmation of the exit. I saw the exit in the distance. I was feeling good. Three children on the age of four, I was making it. Well, that was until we reached the lobby of the YMCA and I'm gonna explain what happened there. <laughs> One of my daughters, I'm withholding 
a name <laughs> for the sake of her future reputation. Okay, one of my tiny precious daughters asked me to stop and grab a Bible verse for her. If you don't know the why, the why has these wicker baskets near the exit and entrance that are full of Bible verses for children. They're like rolled up pieces of paper with Bible verses on them. Uh, they're different colors, it's, it's entertaining. And so of course, when she asked me with her big eyes to go get a, a Bible verse for her, I said no. <laughs> I mean, we were running late. I was tired. My little children choosing between colors takes forever. Every minute feels like dog years in those moments. And it takes multiple minutes for them to choose a favorite color. So I said, no, we have to go. I'm sorry. And that's when the ultimate meltdown happened. <laughs> At first, her face transformed. My daughter's face transformed from joy and excitement to squinting and frowning and then shaking. <laughs> And then the tears started to flow slowly at first and then faster and faster and faster. And then her body went limp in my arms. <laughs> and finally, what started out as a whimper turned into a full-throated scream in the lobby of the YMCA. At that moment, in front of all of those put-together, fit suburban soccer moms and fashionable leggings and kind elderly volunteers in the lobby of the YMCA, mind you, my daughter was in hysterics. I felt first a parental shame that all of us feel when these moments happen, and then a volcanic anger. And underneath all of these emotions was this desperate, fearful thought, we may not make it out of here alive. <laughs> I, what if I'm stuck in the YMCA lobby forever? <laughs> So I clamped down on my desperation. I cobbled together a plan in that moment. I would swing my daughter over my shoulder, legs kicking, and make a run for the exit and the safety of my minivan. But right as I began to pick up my crumpled up and sobbing daughter, she did the unthinkable. She peed. A lot. All over herself, all over me, and all over a good portion of the tiled lobby floor of the YMCA. Kneeling in a puddle of my daughter's urine, I alternated between keeping well-meaning mothers and rightly concerned grandmothers at a distance, while at the same time scurrying back and forth getting paper towels to sop up the mess. And I have to confess at that moment in the urine, I didn't feel compassion or pity I felt smoldering rage and embarrassment for me, most of all, and not for her. And I let my daughter know my anger and my disappointment with fiery looks and mouthed threats. And she wilted in the shame of that moment. Please try to remember this whole scene took place in the lobby of the YMCA during workout rush hour. <laughs> Brought to you by a pastor who wouldn't let his daughter get a Bible verse. <laughs> That started this whole thing. <laughs> so, novelist Michael Chabon once described his own experience of parenting this way. He said, a father is a man who fails every day. A father is a man who fails every day. And of course, this equally applies to mothers and grandparents and guardians. And this truth is at the heart of all of our lives. All of our parents have failed us oftentimes in anger. In fact, our parents have harmed us more than anyone else. 
just by the vulnerability of being little people, of being little beings, okay, and just by the sheer amount of time and shared space that we have together. It's a lot of times to hurt somebody. And this makes verses like Ephesians chapter 6 and verses 1 through 4 so difficult and so heavy to go through. And let's also face this other fact. As my daughter's meltdown, hissy fit, business end of a temper tantrum revealed, no one else has harmed our parents as much as we have harmed them. Okay, I could give you a thousand examples from my life about what I've done with my parents, even recently being an adult man-child. But think again about the large amount of years in close quarters that you've shared with your parents or your guardians. Finally, the opposite is true, of course, that all of that share space and all of that time, along with all of those moments when we were little, that that means that our primary caregiver, that, that means that no one has loved us more than that person or those people. And us, them. No one's quite loved them as much either as family. And all these factors make verses, verses 1 through 4 of Ephesians 6 not just difficult to study, but necessary. Because we still need our parents. We need their loving nurture, and we need their patient structures. So our passage tonight offers a way forward in the midst of a lot of mutual pain and a lot of mutual love, in the midst of good and bad family dynamics that we all have. Ephesians 6 verses 1 through 4 guides us in how to love our parents and also how our parents should love us. And these verses tell us in a sentence, children, give respect to your parents, and parents, give tenderness to your children. So children, give respect to your parents. Parents, give tenderness to your children, because God is a father who is worthy of respect and who is deeply tender with us. All because God is a father who's, deep, who's worthy of respect and deeply tender with us. So Paul lays out how to practice love in our families in a fairly succinct fashion. Okay? First, he addresses the children. Then, still in the children's hearing, Paul addresses the parents. And I'm just going to go out on a limb. Most of you are not parents in this room. So we're going to really focus in on three questions that will help us think through our often complicated relationship with our parents. And these questions also get at some of the nuance and realism of God about our families. So first, this is all in your outline. First, why do children, why do we respect our parents? Okay, verses one through four. Second, what does it look like for us, for children, to honor our parents? That's verses two and four. And finally, number three, how do our parents' tenderness, how does that tenderness point us towards God's, the Father's, greater love for us? And that's verse four. So we're going to begin with verse one, as we usually do. And we're going to start to address the question, why should we respect our parents? Why is this even in the Bible? Okay, so verse 1, if you look there with me, it's pretty straightforward. It says, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Some of you are nodding to yourself and so are saying, done deal. The Bible said it. I read it. Will do, Sid. On to the next point. Others of you want to get up from your seat and physically shake your finger, then your fist in my face. <laughs> and also maybe the Bible its face if it had one. <laughs> Thankfully, verse 1 is not so simple. First, for instance, are you really children in the sense that this passage means? Commentators agree that the Greek word here, the word technon, 
for children means either infant or minor, someone literally underage, someone under a parent's roof and under a parent's care. So a technon in American society and law would refer to a child under the age of 18 and still living at home. So Davidson's a residential college for 18 to 22 year olds, roughly, give or take a few years in either direction. Um, and you're not living at home, so you would not necessarily or likely fit the definition of technon. Okay, so what does that mean? You don't actually always have to obey your parents. Okay, notice that I also, that I said always, okay? Don't, you don't always have to obey your parents. For many of you, there are complicated ways in which you're still a dependent. Okay, this is where it gets tricky. Okay, so you might still fit the definition of a dependent. There's the gray areas that we all live in, so gray that sociologists have termed your stage of life emerging adulthood. Not really sure what that means. No one really is. Emerging adulthood. Okay, so biblically, uh, for instance, a lot of your parents are at least helping. So your parents are helping with paying some of your bills. My guess, tuition. Okay, that's a pretty big bill. Room, board, health insurance, auto insurance, if you have a car, gas, etc. You get the idea. Okay, this might mean biblically that your parents get some say in those areas. They may well get to speak into major or meal plan option or your cell phone upgrade. You want the new Apple iPhone, they may get some say in that if they're paying for it. I'm just going to put that on the table. Okay, at the very least, there needs to be an honest and potentially difficult conversation about the places you need to listen as a dependent and the places that you actually need to be more independent as well, a depend independent, right? You're independent in a lot of ways. Verse one also has another real life important qualification. It's the phrase in the Lord, in the Lord. This is addressed to some of you who are righteously squirming inside, thinking of the worst case scenarios of taking all of your parents' advice in that one area. <laughs> Okay. Perhaps they can be a little overprotective, a little too demanding. Perhaps they play favorites among their children, or maybe they are actually cruel or careless. So careless they've abandoned you, uh, they've left the family scene, so cruel that they're emotionally or physically abusive. God and the Bible get this. If you read the Bible carefully, you'll see throughout, especially in the Old Testament, story after story where families are complicated and messy and oftentimes hurtful. You've got Abraham and you've got Isaac, not the best dads, not the best husbands. You've got Jacob. You've got Eli the priest, terrible dad. You've got King David, who in his later part of his life after the whole Goliath scene, pretty bad dad. Okay, so there's a pretty fair representation of that. And this is why the phrase in the Lord is asking us to hold up what our parent says and asks of us to the light of God's commandments in order to see where they disagree and agree. Does that make sense? So uh, this is just one reason, by the way, to know the Bible better. Because this is where God's teaching is the clearest. Verse 1 is also this call for personal examination and thought and prayer. So, like, look, this is a really important passage for a lot of reasons, especially for you right now in college. I wish we could, I could say we, but I can't, okay? College is a time when this process is happening for you. You have this critical distance for the first time outside of your home for most of you. Some of you went to boarding school, I get that. But a lot of you, this is the first time where you are outside of your parents' house. And you finally get the critical distance to evaluate the ways that you were raised. 
You can start to realize that your default assumptions about how family should work, what's normal, may actually be extremely good or extremely bad. And the straight ruler of scripture helps us make these evaluations, especially when we take time to reflect on our own or discuss our family in light of the Bible or in light of other people's families with wise friends and mentors. For these reasons, I'm using the word respect intentionally for the way that you as a college student and I as an adult, grown adult, your adults, whatever that means, okay? I don't know what I mean by grown adult. Always relate to your parents and their wishes. Does that make sense? I wanna use the word respect to talk about how we relate to our parents and how we relate to their wishes. And I think that's really what the word honor means in verse two. The word honor doesn't have qualifications like obedience. Does that make sense? It doesn't say obey, and then it, has, it says obey in the Lord, and it talks about children. In this case, it says honor, and there's no qualifications. I will define honor as a heart attitude. I'll do it more by example, but let me give you the, the basic abstract definition. Honor is a heart attitude, an interior position of our souls towards our parents. It's a posture that listens before it speaks, gives consideration, and looks for wisdom from experience. That's what honor means, okay? It's a part posture. It's a listening, uh, looking to, considering posture. But why should we adopt this posture of honor and respect? After all, if a father is a man that fails every day, and no one has hurt us more than our parents, why venerate a bunch of failures? Why endure painful relationships? I mean, we didn't choose them. We're not alike. We're going farther apart, it feels like. Sometimes we don't even like our parents. Why not just disassociate? Why not just emotionally disattach from your family? You know, just send the occasional expected holiday greeting card. That objection has a little bit more weight than we like to admit. Some of us refuse to go there at all. Some of us refuse to think of our parents as human beings. Yes, I know your parents tried hard. I'm not trying to say that with a sermon. Your parents tried hard. Guess what? I'm a parent. I would hate for someone just to sit there and say I didn't do anything right at all. I get it firsthand, and I'm giving myself and your parents the benefit of the doubt here. But I'm just going to say this about myself and about your mom and your dad. They also failed you in several ways, and that hurt, and it hurts still a lot. So how do we try to evaluate that sometimes painful relationship objectively? Not denying those bad days, but also not forgetting the many good days too. These few verses in Ephesians chapter 6 help us towards a kind of honesty of perspective. Verse 4 tells us that yes, no one hurts us as much as our parents, but also no one loves us as much as our parents. By length of time, by proximity, but also by the vulnerability of being little. So I want you to kind of understand the culture with which Paul's speaking. He's speaking into a culture where parents are much, much more privileged and empowered. In the first century in the Greco-Roman culture, the parents have ultimate authority over the family, especially the father. And he's commanding these parents to love their children well. He's saying, don't provoke your children, but nurture them encourage them, cherish them, consider them, engage them, and esteem your children. 
And look, as poorly as parents like me sometimes actually do those things, show those things, we actually, deep down inside, do love our children. I love my children. You see, like at my children's birth, my tiny Grinch heart grew three times the size that day. <laughs> if, you had, if you'd walked into the labor and delivery room and said anything about my kids, that they weren't the most handsome, beautiful, precious children you'd ever seen, you know what I would have done? I would have punched you right in the nose. <laughs> okay? I fiercely love my children through diapers, through tricycles, through everything you can imagine. Okay? And I love them from the very beginning, even before their births, in the womb. And I love them in a way that they don't ever get, that they may never understand. In a way I certainly don't get about the way that my parents love me. Listen to the poetic way that author Michael Chabon describes the immense and free love an average parent, just average, shows, and why it's so hard to see. This is how he says, The daily work you put into rearing your children is a kind of intimacy, tedious and invisible as mothering itself. There's another kind of intimacy in the conversations you may have with your children as they grow older, in which you confess to failings, reveal anxieties, share your bouts of creative struggle, regret, and frustration. There's an intimacy in your quarrels, your negotiations, and running jokes. But above all, there's an intimacy in your contact with their bodies, with their poop and pee, their sweat and vomit, with their stubbled kneecaps and dimpled knuckles, with the rips in their underpants as you fold them, with their hair against your lips as you kiss the top of their heads, with the bones of their shoulders, with the horror of their breath in the morning as they pursue the ancient art of forgetting to brush. <laughs> when we begin to see and hear this deep, deep love that our parents have for us, we can start to forgive the awful things that our parents have done to us. When we get a vision for our ingratitude and our pride, we will acknowledge and turn from the many ways we think we're so much smarter and better than they are. Perhaps this is, starts with imagining yourself as what it feels like to fail as a parent and then moving out from there. The posture of humility actually leads to verse three here. Here we're told the parents actually do give us good boundaries. They actually give us healthy expectations that do actually lead to longer and happier lives. This is because many of their rules, like, you know, like eat your veggies, don't hit other people, be kind, they still apply. I know that's shocking. You're over 18, but it still helps to eat vegetables and not hit people and be kind. Okay. They're still wise rules. They're still good boundaries. They still make our lives easier and make them last longer, typically. But we struggle with this idea societally, don't we? Even with verse 1's qualifications that try to account for the abuses of authority, it's hard for us to imagine freedom curbing older authority that's actually loving. I can give you a million analogies of how we need authority to live well and live long. Just I'll give you a couple because I can't resist on a societal level, without traffic laws, we'd all be dead by now. Okay, that's authority. And an orchestra, without a, without a conductor, we'd produce a miserable sound. Loud violins competing with louder drums, all to the glory of self. But I appreciate the way that G.K. Chesterton attacks the problem of imagination directly. Okay? In his book, Orthodoxy, Chesterton tells a story about children who are playing recess games. You know, like the all-out recess games that some of you played when you were growing up, like Red Rover, 
freeze tag, leapfrog, whatever it was. And then he asks you to imagine these children who are running full tilt on a small field. But imagine that small field is on a giant cliffside that has hundreds of yards of feet of drops on each side of the cliff. And it's surrounded by rock, sharp rocks and, and just like pounding surf. Okay, you've got that image. And then Chesterton asks, do you think the children will play harder with more joy and with more freedom with or without a fence surrounding that small field? Will they play harder and more, with more freedom if they have a fence around the field or if they just have, they have just a, a, the edge of the grass and sheer death? Clearly, it's going to be an easier, more fun experience for the children if they're surrounded by a fence, if they're given a boundary, if there are good and necessary limits. You see, paradoxically, our freedom increases with limits around us and authorities over us. I often think happiness is getting what I want, when I want, and how I want it. But life has taught me, slowly but surely, with some bruises and bumps, that lasting happiness comes from learning our limits and from giving way to other people. Yes, we need to push against unjust societal structures, but we need to do that thoughtfully. Is all authority unjust? Is every institution only corrupt and a will to power? Is the only narrative a hidden zero-sum power play? To paraphrase Marilyn Robinson, another novelist, is nothing, worse, is nothing worth mourning or admiring as bigger than ourselves? Is there nothing that we can mourn or admire that's bigger than ourselves? Is everything just a cheap ploy for power in politics and economics? So, I intentionally spent a large amount of time on, I think, the most pressing question of this passage, which is, why should we respect our parents? But now that you're all convinced, I'm, I'm kidding, okay? I, I know some of you are not. But seriously, whether you're convinced or unconvinced, let's take a few moments to apply the how, okay? What would this posture look like in our lives? That's point two on our handout. I'm drawing this heavily from two friends, uh, Doug Servin and Sammy Rhodes on this one. So first, we honor our parents, verse two, by actually opening up our lives to them. It lo- this is what honor looks like to our parents, opening up our lives to them. Some of you do this on the regular, but do you do this to both parents? Or do you use this to one parent? Okay. Why is it that when we go home or we get on the phone with both parents, on holidays with our uncles and our nephews and our siblings, we revert right back to our moody tween years? Why is that, why has that happened to anyone else but me, everyone else? Maybe that's not you, maybe it's just my personal struggle, but I, you know, I'm old and I fall right back into the youngest child routine. Whiny and selfish and giving bored one-word answers to really thoughtful questions that people ask me. Sure. Fine. Okay. Honor asks us this. What if we started friending our parents on Facebook instead of, instead of seeing their profiles as intrusive? Honor asks, what if we read and returned their absurdly autocorrected text messages without an eye roll and scorn? Honor asks us, what if we initiated a phone call when it isn't expected or isn't rushed in a small time frame? Maybe you do this already, but what if you took the risk and you talked out loud and unprompted about your career plans with your parents? What if you talked about who you're dating or who you might want to date? 
what if you talked about what you like and don't like about your major to your dad? What if we asked about a shared memory with them? What if I heard and remembered what they liked and actually got them a present that was not on a holiday for them? Maybe imagining this feels like death by awkward parental silence. Okay? Maybe, maybe for some of you it's wiser to open up more gradually and share in small, safe baby steps with your parents. But we can get past that heavy breathing sound on the phone or the silence-filling neighborhood news that my parents do every time I talk to them about people I don't even know anymore. But we can do that. We can do that by writing a letter or a long email to our parents or having a difficult conversation face-to-face about some part of our life that's maybe hard for you to talk about and hard for them to hear. I've done both of those things with my mom and dad at different times, and it's helped a bunch. And not only that, like, that's my prayer for my children, that when they come back, when they're in college, that they tell me what I did wrong so I could own it and I could ask their forgiveness. Because there's a ton. They're pastor's kids. <laughs> it's tough. Okay, second way to honor your parents looks like seeking their advice and just listening. Seeking their advice and just listening. Our parents have lived a lot longer than us and have accumulated some wisdom along the way. So even if they don't share the same beliefs as you, like my parents don't share the same belief as I have about Christianity, even if you disagree about the way you were raised fundamentally, we can safely assume that our parents have some valuable advice to give. Okay? They, because they often do, even if you don't want to hear their advice again and again. <laughs> same advice. It's still valuable. Hard question to ask yourself is this. Do you treat your parents like you want your future children to treat you? Do you treat your parents like you want your future children to treat you? This helpfully puts ourselves in their shoes. Probably socks with Birkenstocks, but anyway. <laughs> okay? But again, a harder question, a harder question. For those of you who need to take all of your parents' advice all of the time, I have a harder question for you. Okay, do I want my children to feel the kind of pressure to please me that I feel to please them? Do I want my children to feel the same kind of pressure to please me that I feel to please them? Maybe that's something to think about as you think about the ways that you interact with your parents on either side of that fence. And look, there's like a ton more I could say about this. I could talk a lot about honoring our earthly parents. Uh, and just those few applications make me and probably make you feel so self-frustrated and so full of failure, if you're honest. That is why we need to turn our attention to God, who's called our Heavenly Father, and the way that God our Father perfectly loves us. And that's our third and final point. I like the way that Christian counselor Dan Allender puts it. He has like these two questions that children, no matter how old they are, are always asking. They're always asking these two questions. Am I loved? Am I loved? And can I get my way all the time? Am I loved? And can I get my way all the time? To a person, our earthly parents answer these questions poorly and insufficiently. By their, by my actions, Parents communicate, no, you're not loved. At least not as much loved as you should be. And yes, you can have your own way because I'm tired. I just really want you to like me. Only God has said and shown you absolutely that he loves us more than we can imagine. He has shown and told us that we're significant in Christ, that we're worth it, that we're enough for him. And God's growing us in how to live more wisely all the time. 
He's telling us, yes, I love you, and no, you can't get your way all the time. And he somehow holds those intentions. But I'm going to tell you a true story about reimagining God's fatherly love for us. And some of you have heard it, but it bears repeating. There's a, it's a story that happened for real. There's a, there's a little girl who one day goes outside and sees her older sister hanging up their father's white button-down dress shirts on a clothesline. She's little, and her older sister's taller, and she wants to help, and she wants to show her daddy how much she loves him. And so she takes one of his white button-down t-shirts from the laundry basket and tries to hang it on the clothesline, but she just can't actually reach it. She's too small. And so she looks around, and out of the corner of her eye, she sees gleaming in the sunlight two handles exactly her eye-level height on a wheelbarrow. And she goes, bingo. I'm going to put this shirt on those handles. It's just the right height for her daddy's shirt. But unfortunately, she didn't recognize how rusty those wheelbarrow handles are. And she just smiles and she hangs her daddy's shirt and, and then lets it gleam in the sunshine on those rusted metal handles. So a couple hours later, her, her dad gets home. And what does she do? She greets him at the door, grabs his hand, drags him out to see the wheelbarrow, to see the, the shirt that he, she has hung for him. She's so excited. She's so impressed with herself. And so her father looks down and he sees his white pinpoint Oxford button-down shirt. And he sees it flapping in the wind, pasted against the rusty old wheelbarrow handles in the yard. And the father immediately picks up his shirt and examines it. And he found giant streaks of brown-orange rust across the front. And then he yells at the top of his voice at his youngest daughter and punishes her severely. Many years later, that young girl is a middle-aged woman and she goes to counseling. And she starts sharing this with a Christian counselor. Um, and the counselor asks her, again, this is true, how she thought God would have handled that situation. How would have God reacted when he saw the wet shirt on the rusty wheelbarrow? And when he held it up and saw the rust streaks? She said this, and this is the answer, by the way, that we all give. I guess he would just ignore the shirt and hug me. That's the Christian answer, isn't it? I guess he would just ignore the shirt and just hug me. You know what the counselor did? He shook his head. He said, I don't think so. I don't think God would do that. God wouldn't overlook that shirt. But he would take it, he would put it on, and he would wear it to work. And when someone pointed out, hey... You've got rust stains just straight down the front of your shirt. You know, giant rust marks. Uh, you know what your daddy would say? He'd say, let me tell you about how much my little girl loves me. I love her. I like being around her. I just can't get enough of her. And look what she did for me. Listen, if you believe in Jesus, God is bragging about you right now to the angels in heaven. When those perfect angels appear to look into our feeble attempts to pray and to honor our parents, God lifts their angelic chins and looks in their ferocious angelic eyes. And he says, let me tell you about my little girl. Let me tell you about that little guy right there and how much he loves me. You see, God the Father loves you. He's so very proud of you. 
He's crazy about you. God seeks and finds you hiding in the dark. And he brings you back home rejoicing again and again and again and again. If our insecure, immature parents and grandparents know how to give us good gifts, how much more does your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask him? After all, God didn't withhold the best gift, his only begotten son, Jesus, he gave him up on a death on a cross so that we could be adopted into his family to take his place alongside him in the family of God so that God could wrap us up stiff as a board and light as a feather to God. God could wrap us up in a holy hug and so that God could turn over his shoulder hugging us and talk to the angels and say to those people who are beings wrapped up in light, have you seen my child? Have you seen how much I love her? How much I love her? And you know what? God does this even at our worst moments. Our most spiritually bored moments. He did it even in the lobby of the YMCA. Would you pray with me? Father, um, that's true. It's probably, that's the truest thing we can think. I believe uh, it's the hardest thing. <laughs> It's hard when we look at our parents and we think of the hurt or we think of the love or we think of the mix. It's hard to know how to be a son or a daughter. It's hard to know how to be a dad. Um, But I pray that you'd be with us in that, that you'd encourage us with your love, that you'd remind us of the ways that you're excited about us, even when we're not excited about ourselves. And I pray that that would be an image that we'd inhabit, that we would live in that space that we remember how you think of us and how you rejoice over us with loud, obnoxious singing. And I pray that you, that would take us into the homework, that would take us into the activities, that would take us into midterms, that, um, that those things would be nothing for a God who loves to wear our rust stains across his chest. In your name we pray.